Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This week, we are wrapping up our mini-series on bad thrillers with our final bad thriller, Hidden by Fern Michaels. I know this episode took a while to get out, But the delay is fully due to the fact that this particular book, this week's bad thriller, was taking up all, just all of my time and energy. And if that sounds excessive, if that sounds over the top, then that's because it was. It definitely definitely was way too much effort to be putting into this particular book, this particular episode, but my hope is that by the time you finish this episode, you will understand what I went through to get to this moment. You will understand what drove me to put so much of my life into roasting this book. Here's the thing, right? Let me put this into perspective for you. How obscure this particular book is, okay? So our very first bad thriller in this miniseries was What Happened to the Bennets. That book was published in 2022. And this week's bad thriller, our final one, Hidden, was published in 2021. These two books are roughly the same age, but if you go to Goodreads, then What Happened to the Bennets has 58,654 ratings. It has 5,266 reviews. And 66,000 people have marked it as a book that they want to read. In contrast, Hidden has 11,739 ratings, so like a fifth the number of ratings. It has 920 reviews, again about one-fifth the number of reviews, And only 7,862 people who have marked it as a book they want to read. Yeah, this book, Hidden, isn't exactly flying off the shelves. I have paid this book more attention than anyone else in the world ever has or ever will. Now, normally... I would feel bad about bashing on an obscure thriller because most obscure thrillers are written by obscure authors who probably don't deserve to be so thoroughly roasted. It would be kind of mean, right? 
obscure author solidarity. But the good news for this particular thriller is that it is written by Fern Michaels, who is about as far as you can get from an obscure author. She's 90 years old. Her real name is not Fern Michaels. And she has written dozens and dozens of books. She has been on the New York Times bestseller list. She even has her own Wikipedia page. Trust me, this is not some struggling small-time author whose entire livelihood is going to be affected by one bad review. Now, put a pin in that author background because we will be circling back to the author several times throughout this episode, which is not something that I do very often, but it is something that we will be doing today. All right, I am going to issue my obligatory spoiler alert, my usual spoiler warning. For this episode, I will be spoiling absolutely everything, even like the most minor details. So in case you are at all interested in reading Hidden by Fern Michaels, then I would really not recommend listening to this episode. All right, so spoiler warning, spoiler alert, you have been warned. The good news, however, is that if you remember in the previous two episodes, I had to do content warnings. Well, the good news is that this week there is no content warning. Well, except misogyny. There is definitely going to be discussions of misogyny, but the misogyny is more of the internalized variety. Like the misogyny in this book is just so ridiculous that I personally just find it kind of funny, but if you are, you know, sensitive to that topic right now, and, you know, fair enough, like, I get it, I'm that way sometimes, then maybe avoid this episode. But good news is that violence-wise, nothing even remotely bad or violent happens in this book. So if the previous two bad thriller episodes were a little bit intense for you, then you are completely safe listening to this episode violence-wise. Like, this is the only time in the entire episode that I will even mention the word violence. All right, so spoiler warning out of the way, content warning for misogyny. Now, let's get into it. With this week's bad thriller hidden, I am going to start at the very beginning, which is to say I am going to discuss the blurb, the cover, the advertising, the incredibly deceptive way that this book was packaged and marketed. Let me describe to you how this book is presented to potential readers and then I am going to describe to you what is actually inside this book. Okay, ready? Here we go. Let's start with the cover. 
if you have ever designed book covers or helped design book covers or just like brainstormed book covers, then you know that color design is one of the most important parts of clearly communicating to the reader what kind of story you're trying to tell. Now, the color palette of the cover for Hidden is almost entirely dark blue and black, which tends to communicate danger, secrets, tension. It's a pretty common color palette for thrillers. For example, the cover for What Happened to the Bennets also had a very similar color scheme. After the color palette, I think most people tend to home in on the title and the author. The author name for this book is at the top of the cover in large yellow letters. And that makes sense if you consider that this is an established author. So the name is going to be probably the biggest draw. Then underneath the author name, we have the title in slightly smaller white lettering. Now, the title, Hidden, emphasizes that we are talking about secrets and what it brought to mind for me almost immediately was like some kind of diabolical game of hide and seek and then finally you might notice the actual picture on the cover the picture is of a large white house that's obviously in shadow because this shot is meant to like evoke nighttime and the house has a window in the front that's lit up bright yellow. The house has a fence in front of it and walking up to the fence, presumably headed for the brightly lit window, is a woman in a bright yellow raincoat. This picture makes you think that whatever has been hidden, it's been hidden inside of the house and there's a woman who's going to go find whatever it is that has been hidden. Hence, you know, all of the yellow in the cover that emphasizes like searchlights and flashlights and, you know, discovery. So that's the cover. Now, let's take a look at the blurb. A thrilling new suspense novel from the best-selling author of No Way Out. Perfect for fans of Catherine Coulter and Sandra Brown. Visit the shadowy side of North Carolina, where a brother and sister are drawn into a dangerous mystery through an antique with a dark past. At first glance, few would guess that Luna and Cullen Bodman are siblings. Cullen is efficient and serious, while his younger sister Luna is a free spirit. When the two launch their furniture restoration shop slash cafe, an offshoot of the family's longtime antique business in an up-and-coming art center, little do they know their unique talents may be their only defense in a matter of life and death. 
when Luna gets a strange sensation about a piece Cullen just acquired, the two find themselves uniting to solve a mystery that has far-reaching consequences, never knowing there are some who will stop at nothing to claim what they believe is theirs. Despite their differences, Luna and Cullen know they can rely on each other. And this time, their lives may depend on it. Alright, kind of a dramatic blurb, don't you think? I'm going to highlight a few key phrases. Thrilling new suspense novel. A matter of life and death. Dangerous mystery. And then, of course, their lives may depend on it. So basically, this blurb is leading us to believe that whatever is going on here, whatever has been hidden, it's serious stuff. Putting together the cover and the blurb, we can, you know, figure out that Luna is the woman on the cover and she's going to be investigating a mysterious antique with her brother. Given the house on the cover, plus the fact that something paranormal, or at the very least extrasensory, seems to be involved, you know, given Luna's strange sensation, then we might guess that Luna is going to end up at a spooky, or at least a creepy old house, and then she is going to have to uncover the antique's dark past, before that dark past catches up with her. So now you have some sense of what potential readers might reasonably expect going into this book, given the way that it's packaged and marketed. Having actually read the book, however, I'm going to go ahead and point out the first most obvious issue with this book. Namely, I don't think anyone involved in design or marketing actually read the book. Right off the bat, Cullen's name in the blurb is misspelled. His name in the book is Cullen with an E, but in the blurb, it's Cullen with an A. But more importantly, the cover and the blurb have almost nothing to do with the actual book. Yes, there is a brother and a sister. Yes, there is an antique. But the rest just isn't true. There's no mystery. There's no dark past. And there's definitely no danger. Here's what actually happens in this book, okay? Let me condense. 23 chapters, a prologue and an epilogue, 439 pages of mostly filler. Let me condense all of that for you into a paragraph of actual plot. As mentioned in the blurb, Luna and Cullen are siblings and they are starting a new business together. Cullen buys a bunch of old furniture he's planning to restore and among the furniture is an antique table. He acquired this furniture from the estate sale of Randolph Millstone, a business mogul whose recent death left his only son, Arthur, to inherit everything. Unknown to Cullen, well, let's put it like this, 
unbeknownst to Cullen, that sounds more dramatic, right? Unbeknownst to Cullen, Arthur is freaking out because Randolph, he finds out, apparently made a new will shortly before his death, but that will has since disappeared. Basically, Arthur is worried that the new will might have disinherited him. Yeah. Disinherited him. Since the new will is nowhere to be found in the Millstone's house, Arthur and his wife Rowena eventually decide that the will must have been hidden inside the furniture that they sold off after Randolph's death. They buy back all of the furniture except for the old stuff in the garage, which, you know, hint, hint, Cullen was the one who bought all the old stuff in the garage. Anyway, they dismantle all of the furniture, but of course the will is nowhere to be found. Meanwhile, Luna and Cullen dismantle the desk because, remember, she gets a funny feeling, and they find the will which says that Randolph Millstone has left everything to charity. They recognize Randolph Millstone as the billionaire who died recently, and they decide to keep the will safely locked up until someone comes along to claim it. Meanwhile, Rowena and Arthur have decided that the will must have been in one of the old garage furniture pieces by process of elimination. And after making some phone calls, Rowena discovers that all of the garage furniture was sold to Cullen. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Colette, who was Randolph's assistant, shows up at Clive the lawyer's place and explains what happened to the will. Essentially, Clive was Randolph's lawyer and he's refusing to execute the old will because he knows that there's a new will that has gone missing. Anyway, what Clive finds out from Colette is that she witnessed the will and she ended up hiding it shortly before Randolph's death. Like Rowena, Clive the lawyer is able to find out where the garage furniture was sold and he calls and says, hey, I'm Randolph's lawyer and I'll come pick up the will. But Rowena reaches the, you know, sibling's business before Clive gets there and basically her plan is to check out the furniture and decide where the will could have been hidden and instead of like buying the furniture she decides that she's just going to like search the furniture after hours so what she does is she decides to hide in the furniture anyway She's discovered almost immediately by Luna. Luna calls the police. Clive comes to get the new will. And Arthur and Rowena go to jail. Everyone except Arthur and Rowena get to live happily ever after the end. So there you go. Around 500 words to say what it took the author. 110,000 words to very, very slowly tell us. There is no dark past. It's just, oh look, here's a rich dead guy's will that leaves everything to charity. His kid is probably not happy about that. Cut to Arthur and he's indeed not happy about that. 
Arthur finally figures out where the will must be. Arthur's wife sets out to find it. His wife does not find it. And they both end up in jail. End of story. So mysterious. I'm so thrilled by what's going on. There's also no mystery. There's nothing to discover either for the characters or the reader. Luna and Cullen find a piece of paper and then they give the piece of paper to the correct person once that person makes contact. They're not in danger at any point. They don't investigate anything. They don't deduce anything. They just live their lives and return misplaced property. Definitely what I call a matter of life and death. And that brings me to the final disparity between marketing and reality. The villains! Arthur and Rowena do not pose any actual threat at any point. They show up at the last moment when, you know, they're mostly just an inconvenience because Luna and Cullen have already found the will, they already know what the will entails, and they already have it safely locked up. And if that's not enough, they've also been warned by Clive that they should keep an eye out for Arthur and Rowena. The villains don't threaten Luna or Cullen at any point. They don't harm anyone. They don't seem like they're capable of harming anyone. They're just a pair of bumbling fools with huge bad guy signs pointed at them. Please be scared. These are bad guys. Look, these are really, really bad guys. Are you scared yet? No. I'm not, because they're really stupid, and really incompetent, and really lazy, and they don't figure anything out until the very end of the book, when the will is locked up in a safe, and Clive is already on his way to get it. Realistically, the villains don't know where the will is, or how to find it, and even if they did find out that it's in the safe, it will be pointless because it's not like they can get to it. They'll do anything to get the will back. Yeah, they'll show up to your place and be vaguely shady. And then, you know, you can just easily capture them and you never have to think about them again. Hooray! Where is the thrilling new suspense novel that I was promised? Because I'm not thrilled and I'm definitely not feeling any suspense. The essential thing that makes Hidden such a bad thriller is that it's not a thriller at all. Circling back to how this book was packaged and marketed, I want to emphasize again the way that this book was specifically advertised as a thrilling new suspense novel. And that leads to a disappointing reading experience. Because the thing is, this book should have been marketed as a cozy mystery. Now, having read a number of cozy mysteries, I'm not going to say that it's a good cozy mystery, an effective cozy mystery, because even cozy mysteries, they, they have to be mysteries. But 
cozy mystery is definitely the most suitable genre for this story. Hidden has all of the hallmarks of a cozy mystery. It has the continual focus on food. It has the lovable and completely flawless protagonists versus the completely evil and unredeemable villains. It has the small town and the focus on small town relationships and events. This is a cozy mystery. It's not a thriller. And if this book had been marketed properly, it would have reached the correct audience. And I would have saved myself so much time and effort because I would have never read this book. But as the misspelling of a major character's name in the blurb may have indicated, it really doesn't seem like the people in charge of packaging and marketing this book were paying any attention to the actual content because the publisher seems to have been relying almost exclusively on the author's name to sell copies. I imagine it does happen a lot to these kinds of authors, authors who are really well established, who have been selling books for decades, you know, they've been on the New York Times bestseller list many times, maybe not literally, but you get the point. So yeah, it was definitely a disappointing reading experience because the plot was not what was advertised. But don't worry! We haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what made this particular book the worst reading experience I have had so far this year. Beyond the plot itself, beyond the deceptive marketing, I'm going to highlight three aspects of this book that made it such an unpleasant reading experience in a way that is unparalleled by any other book that I have read this year. Namely, the three issues are pacing, editing, and of course, the characters. Issue number one, the pacing. The pacing of this book is atrocious, mainly because so little happens in this book, but it has to be stretched across so many pages. Allow me to illustrate with some help from my 73 pages of notes. Yes, I did have 73 pages of notes by the time I was done with this book. And originally, I had a script that was almost as long and I have managed to condense that script into something more reasonable, something a little more listenable. So, you are very welcome. Now, there are 23 chapters, a prologue, and an epilogue in this book. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an overview of the reading experience I had to endure so that you can get some sense of the pacing, or rather, the lack thereof in this book. Ready? Buckle up, fasten your seatbelts, and keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times, because this ride gets rough. You have been warned. The prologue is pretty basic. It sets up the story. Intro, Arthur, Rowena, Luna, Cullen, and the so-called mystery. The will is missing. Cullen gets the table. Luna gets a funny feeling about the table. Clearly, the will is in the table. The real issues with the pacing start in chapter one. 
because in chapter one, nothing happens. Oh, wait, but we do learn that when Luna was five years old, she had an imaginary friend. Moving on to chapter two, nothing happens in chapter two. Oh, wait, but we do get a flashback to when Luna first met her love interest. Also, Luna has a dog. And in case you're wondering, this chapter full of vital information was 34 pages long. In chapter three, you guessed it, nothing happens. Oh, but we do get the entire life story of a minor character named Ellie who runs the art center and makes zero contributions to the actual plot. Let's recap, shall we? Chapter one, expo dumping. Chapter two, expo dumping. Chapter three, take a wild guess. I'll give you a moment. Ready? You got it. It's expo dumping. In chapter four, we visit our villains, Rowena and Arthur. Arthur gets angry and Arthur gets a phone call and he makes a phone call. And I mean, what can I really say? Making a phone call. That's pretty villainous behavior when you could just send a text, send an email, send a voice message, two phone calls in a day. You bet that's super villain behavior. In chapter five, we are still with our villains, Arthur and Rowena. And guess what happens? Arthur makes an appointment for the next morning. We, we don't get the actual appointment. We just learn that it's going to happen. But we also get to learn that Arthur is bad at sex. So, plot twist. In chapter six, nothing happens. Oh, I mean, no, no, actually, no, no. My bad. No, that's not true. We get Luna's love interest's backstory. And guess what? Guess what we learn? You are never going to believe this. You guys, Luna's love interest has been divorced. And I've misplaced my fainting couch. Like, I can't find it anywhere. Like, what am, what am I going to do? Oh, wait. Wait a minute. But he never really loved his ex-wife. Okay, we're all good. Never mind you guys. No, no, no need to freak out. He didn't really love her, okay? And also, Luna's love interest, he likes her back. You guys, I'm like so excited. Like, this is like so awesome. Let, let, let's back up a minute, shall we? How old are these characters again? They're, they're mid-30s. And they act like middle schoolers throughout this entire book. No, actually, not even middle schoolers. They act like elementary schoolers. This is the kind of thing you do on the playground in elementary school. Like, do you think he likes me? Oh my god, he totally likes you. You should go ask him. You know, like stuff like that. It's so, so childish. Here's a quote from my chapter 7 notes. 
forget a thriller page, this book doesn't even have a thriller chapter. In chapter 7, Luna tells us that the Art Center grand opening event, which takes up almost the entire chapter, is hectic and exciting. My thoughts? I just wish I knew what she was talking about because all I got to see was people talking and people eating and Luna being all, does he like me? Does he like me? Does he like me? Like whatever was so hectic and exciting, apparently it happened completely off page. But don't worry, chapter eight, something actually happens. In chapter eight, we get some flashlight action as Luna and Cullen discover that there is something inside the table. Oh, but they're not gonna like actually open up the table because you know, you can't put too much action in a single chapter. When you're writing a thriller, you're not supposed to put too much action into a single chapter because you don't want your readers getting too excited. Instead, you should pad out like that one action your characters do with other more important things like introducing random evil woman making a pass at Luna's love interest. Truly, truly some exciting stuff here. In chapter nine, we get a raffle where an offstage character we have never heard of and who never comes out wins a car. Good for him. He gets a new car. I hope he can afford the taxes. Also, Colin is like, I'll totally open up that table tomorrow. Also, also, you are never going to believe this, but Luna becomes texting buddies with her love interest also also yeah nothing happened <laughs> you may have noticed a recurring theme nothing happened in chapter 10 arthur and rowena because we're back with our villains they get a list with the names of the people who bought their furniture Arthur yells a lot, and Rowena spends a bunch of pages thinking about how much she hates her husband, which we have already discussed in detail. On a completely unrelated note, in my notes, I celebrate getting 46% of the way through this book. Please be proud of me. Please, please be proud of me that I persevered and got through it to reach this moment in history. No, I'm just kidding. <sighs> anyway, in chapter 11, we get a brand new point of view character, a random private detective named Jerry Thompson, who, spoiler alert, is going to come out for two chapters and then never again. We get eight 18 pages in this chapter and you want to you want to know something that I've never seen in any book probably ever what happens in those 18 pages is very kindly summarized for us at the end of the chapter identified subject check informed employer check found residence check 
Initiated contact. Check. It had been a long but productive day. See, like, the author is taunting us. Like, she's like, see, you didn't actually have to read that chapter. And I'm like, I wish I had known that. Like, you could have told me up front. Like, you could have just put this and just put blank pages for, you know, the rest of the chapter. Like, half a page to say this or quarter of a page. I don't know. Quarter of a page to say this and then 17 blank pages and then we would have both been happy, okay? Instead, we get stuff like this for 17 pages. He, Jerry, hustled to his room, pulled out his laptop, and opened the publisher program. To which I have to say, boo windows! See? I'm having so much fun. So, so much fun. However, we do get to learn that Jerry apparently went to the Jason Bennett School of Disguises. He, Jerry, pulled out a black hairpiece that would fit perfectly over his well-waxed skull and a pair of lightly tinted aviator sunglasses. With two-inch lifts for his shoes, he doubted that anyone would recognize him from the day before. Oh, but that's not all. That's not all. He also turns his jacket inside out. And he fakes a slight limp. Honestly, this is more Nancy Drew than Jason Bennett because turning your jacket inside out is actually like a crucial plot point in several Nancy Drew books. So yeah, that's that's the level, the level of thrills we are getting here. Actually, no, that's not fair to Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew had some actual action going on, okay? Anyway, here's an excerpt from my chapter 12 notes. No, 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 no. I refuse. We are getting Colette's backstory. I am not doing this. I refuse. You can't make me. I may have been going a little crazy by this point. How about an excerpt from my chapter 13 notes? Oh, Arthur is angry. How novel. Also, in my chapter 13 notes, I have begun hyping myself up to get myself through this book. Let me show you. 11 more chapters, 200 more pages. We can do this. You know, reading this book was so much fun. However, all is forgiven since stuff happened in this chapter. Let's recap. Rowena goes through an Excel file. And in my notes, again I say, boo windows. But we do get spreadsheets, which, as we all know, are a vital component in every thriller. Never trust a thriller that doesn't have spreadsheets. Oh, and, you know, besides the spreadsheets, Rowena also makes a bunch of phone calls and buys back all of the furniture. Two things, two things happened in this chapter. Paperwork and phone calls. In chapter 14, Private Detective Jerry makes his last appearance. He questions Colette and learns absolutely nothing. 
I, I'm not sure what you were expecting me to say there, but yeah. He learns absolutely nothing. Then we get an 11-page road trip where Colette and her kid drive to a hotel. And then they eat at a restaurant. And then, you know what happens? Her kid has a bathroom accident. But he gets to watch Toy Story afterward. So he's still having a better time than I did reading this book. Chapter 15 takes 18 pages to get to the point where Luna and Cullen finally open up the table and read the document and, you know, figure out what's going on with the will. Why does it take 18 pages to open up a table and read a document, you may ask? Let me tell you why. Because it was vital that we spend most of this chapter following Luna as she sets out to buy scones and blueberry muffins and wait for it, crumb cake muffins for her cafe. Also, we learn that people like lattes. Lattes are a popular drink order at cafes. Gosh, like, who knew? Also, I learned, like, today I learned, you need milk? To make lattes? Life hack alert. Buy a lot of milk if you want to make a lot of lattes. Luna teaching us something every time she comes out. Chapter 16. We are once again back with our villains, Arthur and Rowena. They have acquired the furniture, as we already discussed, and they are now planning to take the furniture apart. But first... Some very important preparations. Rowena goes shopping online for some workout clothes. And Arthur orders sandwiches for dinner. Yeah, that, that's all that happens in this chapter. Online shopping and sandwich ordering. You know, it's kind of strange that it's at this point in my notes where my catchphrase becomes... Who cares? Like, these are such important plot points. And I'm just sprinkling them with who cares? Like, the audacity. But don't worry. If you were getting a little bored, chapter 17, stuff happens. Because Colette finds Clive, the lawyer. And Colette talks to Clive. And Colette spends two pages making chicken salad oh and we get more excel action because clive calls arthur and he's like send me the inventory of the stuff you sold and arthur sends it over on a spreadsheet all right in chapter 18 the cell service goes out at clive's cabin and colette makes dinner And Colette's sister is worried about her because Colette forgot to call her. You guys, I do not know how I handled all of the thrills. My blood pressure will never recover. In chapter 19, Luna and Cullen 
go out with their friends and have dinner. And everyone convinces Luna that they should put the will in a safe. And in case you're wondering how this took up an entire chapter, let me tell you, most of the chapter is Luna going, does he like me? Does he like me? Does he like me? I don't know, you guys. Does he like her? Like, does he like her? Like, can someone just tell her whether or not he likes her so she can stop annoying me? Please and thank you. In chapter 20, Clive's son, Logan, figures out that you can enable Wi-Fi calling to make phone calls when there is no cell service. Be still, my beating heart. And because of the modern day miracle that is Wi-Fi calling, we get 36 pages of people making phone calls. And then after all of that excitement, we get a cliffhanger, the first cliffhanger in the entire book. Listen closely. He, Clive, knew that there was a lot to be done, including deciphering the spiral-bound notebook. Although he was relatively sure what the numbers represented, his task was to match it up with the other millstone ledgers. That could take some serious forensic accounting. There we go, our cliffhanger, our indication that we are hurtling, rapidly hurtling towards an exciting climactic finale in two more chapters. In chapter 21, I open by celebrating in my notes. Three more chapters, let's do this. And then immediately after that, I wrote, back with Rowena and Arthur, and I am very over this. But, you know, there was no reason for me to be so pessimistic. Because we get an entire chapter of my favorite thing to happen in thrillers. People deciding to go places. You know, not actually going places, but deciding to go places. Oh, but, you know, Arthur also decides that he is not going places. So, some nice variety sprinkled in there, you know, just for funsies. Chapter 22, next to last chapter. Rowena shows up at, you know, Luna and Cullen's small business. And Luna's all, she's kind of sus. Because Rowena's like... I'm just here to browse. Please keep that in mind. Next time you walk into a store and you don't know what you want to buy, everyone working at the store is going to like kind of eye you. Like, that's kind of sus. Oh, and the people working at said store are going to suspect you of wanting to walk off with the furniture because that's just something people do all the time. They walk out of stores carrying furniture. You know, it's like a it's like a real threat. I don't I don't know why I was laughing. Like that's it's a serious thing, you guys. For forget everything else that people are worried about. Let's talk about this epidemic of people walking out of stores carrying furniture. But we do actually get some excitement because Rowena comes up 
with her brilliant plan of hiding in a cabinet. And then she hides in the cabinet. Alright, it's time for our big showdown, everyone. The pieces are in place. Everyone's ready for action. Chapter 23, our final chapter, is the big showdown. Rowena gets discovered almost immediately, and Luna's like, hold still, or I'll use this fire extinguisher on you. And then the police show up. End of chapter. Yeah, end of chapter. You guys, that was so exciting. I, I don't know. I don't know what made me kind of stutter to a halt. Like, that was so, so exciting. I mean, come on. What, what thriller have you read recently that had the protagonist successfully threatening someone with a fire extinguisher. Come on, come on. You, you gotta admit, it's, it's brilliant. And then the epilogue is a two-page wrap-up where everyone lives happily ever after except Rowena and Arthur who have to go to jail. And that is the end of the book. Real talk, I was like going to start scripting almost immediately after I finished the book. But I was just so mentally exhausted that I could not. And then it took me forever once I started to actually finish the script. And I am here to talk about the worst reading experience I think I have ever had. Because doing podcasts apparently requires great sacrifices. Like who knew? All right, moving on to issue number two, editing, or rather, the glaring lack thereof. You may have already figured out that this book has a lot of filler, but even the line editing feels very much like an amateur job. For example, throughout the book, there are constant point of view switches and the point of view switches often happen in the most abrupt places, like in the middle of a paragraph, and it often just jars you so much. Like, wait, what? We switched to someone else's point of view? Like, now we're in Luna's point of view? Okay, whatever. But I think the worst example of confusing point of view switches is this excerpt. So in this excerpt, Jerry, the private detective, is meeting up with Colette, who you remember is Randolph's assistant. And Jerry is there to question her about the will. Colette seemed to cringe when he approached her. Was it her imagination? Or was she being paranoid? Okay, let's, let's parse this, okay? Colette seemed to cringe... So it must be Jerry's point of view, right? Like, if we were in Colette's point of view, she would know whether or not she was cringing. But then, in the very next sentence, was it her imagination? Or was she being paranoid? So now we're in Colette's point of view. But the real question is, what is Colette talking about? Is it her imagination that she's cringing? Is she being paranoid to think that she might be cringing? Someone needs to explain this one to me because I thought I had a pretty good grasp of the English language, but apparently I was wrong. There are also so many times where things 
are italicized in this book that should not be italicized. Let me show you. Let's play a little game, okay? Just a quick little game. I promise it won't be hard. Here is an excerpt from the book that I'm going to read to you. And our point of view character here is Ellie, who is the owner of the art center. Though it was the gesture of a kind and loving young woman, Ellie felt it was some kind of omen, a message. It was going to be all she had imagined. Gosh, how she missed Richard. This was spectacular, but it would have been much better had he been there to watch the development of Ellie's vision. Okay, I hope you are listening closely because I have a quiz for you. There is one sentence in that excerpt, okay? A single sentence that is italicized because it is supposed to be an internal thought. So my question for you is this. Which sentence is italicized in the text? Actually, you know, I'll make this fair. I'll read the excerpt to you again. Listen closely. Which sentence here in this excerpt is supposed to be an internal thought that's italicized? Though it was the gesture of a kind and loving young woman, Ellie felt it was some kind of omen, a message. It was going to be all she imagined. Gosh, how she missed Richard. This was spectacular, but it would have been much better had he been there to watch the development of Ellie's vision. All right, I'm going to give you a moment, okay? Which sentence in that excerpt is italicized? Because it is supposed to be an internal thought. Think it over. I'll give you a moment. Okay, I hope you have your answers ready. The answer is, this is the sentence, gosh, how she missed Richard. That is the sentence that was chosen to be italicized. And if you got the answer wrong, I can't blame you because it's indistinguishable from the surrounding monologue. And correct me if I'm wrong, I, I don't really pretend to be a grammar expert, but I don't think that's correct. Like, I don't think that should be italicized, right? There's even a point in the book where the wrong name is used. And it just feels like if anyone else had taken a look at this book before they hit that publish button, then these mistakes would have been spotted and fixed. But as it is, these mistakes make it feel like there was only one person who was working on this book, namely the author. It feels self-published, and I say that as a person who does, you know, self-publish. Hopefully my books are not as rough as this. But that's just the line editing. That's just the nitty gritty. Because something that absolutely should have been pointed out by our non-existent editor is just how much of this book is taken up by characters and character backstories and character point of views that contribute absolutely nothing. Now, I took an extensive look at the author's website in preparation for this episode, and I'm going to quickly pull a quote from her June newsletter slash blog post that I think highlights an important point. 
When I am holed up in my office with my fur menagerie, I get engrossed in the characters and the scenarios I create. Quite frankly, I kind of miss them afterward, which is why I enjoy writing series. We get to play together again. It's like a reunion, except nobody gets old. If only. So clearly, this is an author who loves her characters. And that's great. The issue is simply this. When you want to have a character-driven story, particularly a character-driven thriller or cozy mystery, you need to have characters who are interesting, characters who are compelling, and you need to have characters who either move the story forward or who contribute to the themes or messaging that the story is trying to convey. For example, Sharp Objects and Gone Girl, both by Gillian Flynn, are relatively slow character-driven stories, but they work because the characters are not only interesting in and of themselves, but they also embody the ideas that the books are exploring. I mean, do you think the cool girl monologue would be as effective if the character of Amy wasn't so well drawn? Probably not. The problem with the characters in Hidden is that as far as I can tell, they don't contribute anything either to the narrative or to what the book is trying to say. For example, consider this excerpt where someone has just won a raffle for a brand new car and of course we have to learn all about them. And the winner is Tony Bandiera. Everyone cheered. Tony was a local musician who was a favorite among the locals. He drove a classic 1950s Chevy Bel Air he had restored himself over the years. But getting his equipment into the trunk was problematic. Now he could get to his gigs in one trip. Luna looked through the crowd but didn't see him. He was probably getting ready to do a few sets at the Proving Ground, where he normally played every Saturday. Or consider this excerpt where we get to learn all about Arthur's ex-wife. Rowena thought about Arthur's ex. She wondered who had gotten the better end of the deal. Sylvia Millstone had received a very hefty settlement upon becoming the ditched wife, the equivalent of a golden parachute. She appeared to be extremely content to leave with a settlement of $10 million. It was half of Arthur's net worth at the time, most of which consisted of his stake in the family business, which itself depended upon the provisions of his father's last will and testament. Sylvia might have seemed to be the silent, dutiful, and now scorned wife, but she was shrewd. Sylvia had moved to Portugal with her substantial settlement. For one thing, Rowena knew that Sylvia wouldn't want to hang around town while she and Arthur were the new it couple. Little did anyone know that Sylvia would be doing cartwheels if she hadn't torn her rotator cuff. Sylvia was 55 years old and had a whole lot of living ahead of her. She had bought a villa, drank wine, ate good food, and had the company of a man 10 years her junior. And this goes on for another paragraph, 
But you get the idea. Why do we need to know any of this? Why does it matter to the story or the reader or anyone else in the entire world? Who knows? After 439 pages of this, I can definitively tell you that it's not me. We even get entire point of view characters who contribute absolutely nothing. For example, Ellie the Art Center owner gets so many pages dedicated to her point of view, including, of course, her entire backstory. Ellie Stillwell would be considered a dowager by some, but much of her wealth came from her own family. The origin of her wealth was something she kept under her red hat. In the late 1950s, North Carolina had begun to focus on economic development, which had the effect of increasing the value of the land as it became more scarce, and developers were willing to pay more for it. Her family had purchased large parcels, mainly to assure themselves that they would have a say as to how the land was developed. Part of her family's estate was a large tract situated several miles from the downtown area of Nashville, Nashville, Asheville, North Carolina. No one had thought much of that parcel until Ellie secured a permit to build an art center on it. Some local politicians were adamantly opposed, complaining that it would mar the countryside. The center was to sit on 50 acres within a larger section of one square mile. Though most people in the area thought of it as farm country, there hadn't been a farm on the property since the end of the Second World War. But Ellie was on a mission. And, you know, good for you. I'm going to spare you the rest of the pages and pages and pages of backstory that we get on Ellie. And, of course, having Ellie's point of view, it gives us many valuable contributions to the story. Allow me to illustrate. When complete, the building itself boasted 50,000 square feet and an outdoor Belgian block patio. It was surrounded by several acres of landscaped greenery and open space. Three sides of the first floor were devoted to workshops and art studios facing inward toward the courtyard. Each had sliding glass doors to offer the most exposure and allow for secure closing overnight. The fourth side consisted of specialty shops selling food items and straddled each side of the large folding doors leading to the patio. There was a spot for artisanal cheeses and a cafe that served and sold specialty teas and coffees. Another sold baked goods. There was a shop selling handmade ice cream, a gourmet sandwich shop, and a wine cellar. Not wanting to deal with kitchen issues and to minimize her interactions with the Board of Health, all food 
was brought in freshly prepared daily. It was a grab-and-go style. Patrons had the option of grabbing something on their way out or sitting at one of the small cafe tables dotting the interior courtyard. The outside courtyard also held several tables with umbrellas for alfresco dining, weather permitting. There is much more where that came from, but, but, that's not all that Ellie's point of view gives us. We also get stuff like this. She, Ellie, thought about the initial interaction she had with the Bodmans, Luna and Cullen. He was gentrified, cordial and warm without being smarmy. The sister was quirky, funny, and astute. Interesting combination. And I mean, you know, side characters whose main purpose in life is hyping up the protagonists are a vital component of every thriller. Side note, somebody please tell our 90-year-old author that gentrified is not usually used as a compliment these days. But do you want to know what makes Luna astute? Of course you do. This moment. Ellie remembered at the end of the interview that Luna took Ellie's hand and said, You are doing a wondrous thing. Have no fear. It will all work out. And she gave Ellie a kiss on the cheek. My note was, I mean, kissing up, literally, to the owner of your place of business is astute, but probably not for the reasons that Ellie is thinking. Anyway, my point is this, right? It's fine to love your characters, and it's perfectly fine to write pages and pages and pages of character sheets and profiles for every single person who is even tangentially related to the story. But here's my question. Why are these character profiles in the actual book? And why did literally nobody notice before the book was unleashed on an unsuspecting public? Me. I'm talking about me. Because there was no editing. That's why. In case you are still somehow not convinced that this book needed some serious editing, I'm just going to showcase a couple of moments in the book where the author talks directly to the reader. Ready? Consider this moment where Gaines, who is Luna's love interest, opens the car door for her. Again, he opened the passenger door for her. I could get used to this. It was an act of kindness and courtesy. Being weak or feeble had nothing to do with it. There should be no shame in exhibiting good manners. You can just see her like wagging her finger as she's writing this. There should be no shame in exhibiting good manners. And it's like, okay, boomer, we get it. Traditional gender roles are good. Chivalry isn't dead. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know, I, it's not like I disagree. 
I don't think that opening doors for people is upholding the patriarchy or whatever. You know, actually, I open doors for people all the time. No way, no way, no way. Wrong way around. Oops. And then there's this passage. It comes at the very end of the book where we learn about Arthur and Rowena's ultimate fate. And when I tell you I laughed, let me show you. When Rowena insisted on calling her lawyer, much to her dismay, Clive refused to speak to her, advising her to seek other counsel. Arthur met with a similar response. With the pending litigation, all the millstone assets were frozen, forcing Rowena and Arthur to have a court-appointed attorney represent them. Bail would be out of the question unless Rowena hawked her jewelry. Such a dilemma. Arthur and Rowena were sitting on their glorious butts with no lawyer in all of New England wishing to represent them. Too bad, so sad. That is literally part of the narrative. It's not italicized. Nobody is thinking this. It's the narrative. Too bad, so sad. May I remind you that this book is written for adults? So... That's the pacing, the editing. Now it's time to talk about the characters. In the original version of this script, around 70% of it was just me ranting about the characters. But instead of inflicting all of that on my poor unsuspecting audience, I have pared it down to a couple of key characters that I really really hated slash had a lot to say about and so I am just going to talk about these key characters instead. Again, you are welcome. So the characters I've decided that we need to discuss are our co-protagonists Luna and Cullen, Luna's love interest Gaines, and finally our villains Arthur and Rowena. We are also going to discuss two very minor side characters, Amber and Janine, and you are going to have to wait to find out why I find these characters important enough to bring up, since they only appear a grand total of one time each. Let me give you a hint. Misogyny. Alright, stew on that, but for now, we are going to begin with Luna. Our very first introduction to Luna was the moment I knew that Luna and I were not going to get along. Here is how she is introduced to us. Luna was a free, creative soul. Given her paranormal endeavors, she used Bodhi as her last name in honor of her alter ego. The word meant enlightened in Sanskrit, but when it came to working with Cullen, she was a bombman through and through. But it was her interest in human behavior that had led her to earn a degree in psychology with a strong focus on parapsychology. Luna was also astute at kinesics, the interpretation of body language. Both of her skills, learned and intuitive, allowed her to do freelance work with local police departments, handling missing persons cases including a big case for the U.S. Marshal's Office of Missing Children. In case it did not immediately jump out to you, let me read that second paragraph again. But it was her interest in human behavior 
that had led her to earn a degree in psychology with a strong focus on parapsychology. Luna was also astute at kinesics, the interpretation of body language. There's a lot going on here. Let us unpack. In case you're wondering what parapsychology is, it's essentially the so-called study of paranormal abilities. Parapsychology was incredibly popular during the 19th century. A lot of people in the 19th century were obsessed with like paranormal stuff and just like so-called spiritual stuff. Parapsychology has since been largely debunked, unsurprisingly, but apparently there are still major universities in the United States that have parapsychology labs, which I'm sure produce incredibly valuable research. And I think this, you know, major universities having parapsychology labs thing is probably why the author thinks that it's possible to study parapsychology as a perfectly normal modern day American college student. But guess what I happened to find on the website of the Parapsychology Association? The Parapsychology Association has been around for a while. It's the um, major professional association for the study and practice of parapsychology. And on their website, they specifically state that you cannot study parapsychology at either an undergraduate or graduate level in the United States, even at universities that have parapsychology labs. So wherever Luna went to college and studied parapsychology, I'm going to have to go ahead and say that was not an accredited institution. But given that being psychic is such a huge chunk of Luna's personality, we're going to have to talk about it. Now, the thing is, I don't actually care that Luna's psychic. Like, I think it can be really interesting to explore in fiction. But I absolutely do care that the author keeps tying the paranormal stuff to so-called scientific explanations. Let me show you what I mean. Here is an excerpt from Luna's Backstory Expo Dump chapter, okay? In college, Luna's undergraduate psychology curriculum offered several electives in the paranormal, a phenomenon beyond the scope of scientific understanding. It included extrasensory perception, telepathy, clairvoyance, telekinesis, and psychometry. Psychometry? I don't really care. She was particularly fascinated with psychometry, leaning on the theory that since everything is made of energy, one could get vibrations from inanimate objects. When asked for an explanation of the phenomenon, she would quote Sir Isaac Newton's law of universal gravitation, gravitation, or cite Neil deGrasse Tyson, 
the director of the Hayden Planetarium and successor host of the TV series Cosmos, first developed by Carl Sagan. If neither of those worked, she would talk about electroencephalograms and brain activity, the development of neuroscience, and electromagnetic impulses. After the first minute and a half, the eyes of whoever had asked about it had glazed over, and they had moved on to a different subject. Clearly, she did not go to an accredited institution, because apparently telepathy and clairvoyance are things you can study at Luna's college. Try to imagine your college friend coming up to you and saying, Oh yeah, my telekinesis class is going really well. You know, last week, I was only able to move a spoon with my mind, but this week, I was able to move an entire pasta strainer. Like, no. <laughs> just, just no. More importantly, however, what this excerpt is trying to do is one of my least favorite things when it comes to quote-unquote science-based arguments that try to justify believing in the paranormal and try to make it seem like it's reasonable, rational, inarguably, totally, completely true. I've mentioned in one of my previous episodes that I have a STEM degree, and in general, I am just a very rational, science-based person because that's my background, that's my training. But at the same time, here's the thing. I don't actually know if paranormal stuff is real or not. Same goes for religion. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, you're so stupid for believing in ghosts or spirits or whatever. I would never say that. Like, sincerely, I don't know. And I'm okay with not knowing because I think it's very likely unknowable as a definitive binary answer. Are ghosts real? Is there life or consciousness in any form after death? Here's what I believe. I believe that there is never going to be an actual answer. And I think you just have to make your peace with that. So I'm not here to shame people or ridicule people for believing things that bring them hope or comfort. The author of this book, for Michaels, is someone who does definitely believe in this kind of thing. For example, here's an excerpt from the bio on her website. And, you know, like I said, I did go through her website pretty extensively when I was putting together this episode. Unfortunately, I could not get my ghost to relocate. This ghost has been documented by previous owners. Mary Margaret, as we call her, is a friendly. She is also mischievous. It took me two weeks to figure out that she didn't like my coffee cups. They would slide off the table or counter, or else they'd break in, in the dishwasher. I bought red checkered ones. All are intact as of this writing. 
She moves pillows from one room to the other, and she stops all the clocks in the house at 9, 10, and the a.m. at least once a week. When the azaleas are in bloom, and only then, I find blooms on my nightstand. As of this writing, we're cohabiting nicely. And honestly, like, who am I to dunk on a 90-year-old lady for being hopeful about the afterlife? Like, that's just so mean, and I'm really not here to do that, okay? I am not here to get personal. However, when you start trying to insinuate that actually paranormal phenomenon can be explained by science, when you start trying to pull out scientific jargon and you start trying to say that this totally explains that paranormal stuff is real, then we have a problem. Then I'm going to take issue with that. If paranormal phenomena are real, then they are not going to fit within our current scientific frameworks. Science is not about fundamental truths. It's about creating models for understanding the phenomena that we observe. And our current scientific models are absolutely limited by focusing only on controlled, repeatable phenomena, which paranormal stuff absolutely does not fit into. Therefore, you cannot explain paranormal activity via our current scientific models. And to pretend you can is intellectually dishonest on a level that staggers me. So when Luna is like, she was particularly fascinated with psychometry, leaning on the theory that since everything is made of energy, one could get vibrations from inanimate objects. When asked for an explanation of the phenomenon, she would quote Sir Isaac Newton's law of universal gravitation or cite Neil deGrasse Tyson, the director of the Hayden Planetarium and successor host of the TV series Cosmos, first developed by Carl Sagan. If neither of those worked, she would talk about electroencephalograms and brain activity, the development of neuroscience and electromagnetic impulses. After the first minute and a half, the eyes of whoever had asked about it had glazed over and they had moved on to a different subject. Psychometry is essentially where you get information about people from themselves, like just being around them or from their possessions. For example, when Rowena finally shows up, Luna suddenly gets the Cruella DeVille song from 101 Dalmatians running through her head. And Luna's like, that must mean she's evil. I don't know what it means that I randomly get high school musical songs running through my head every time I'm in the cereal aisle at the grocery store, but maybe Luna could tell me. Anyway, please note all of the buzzwords that Luna is throwing around to try to convince us that her beliefs are totally scientifically valid. Her first argument is that you can get so-called vibrations from inanimate objects because everything is made of energy. And since 
all of this like scientific explanation is just popular science 101 buzzwords what luna is referring to is the famous equation e equals mc squared basically all that equation says is that particles still have energy when they're at rest so for example when you have particles colliding you can then calculate energy transferred, energy lost, and so on. The significance of this equation is not everything is made of energy, but rather, where does thermal energy come from? Where does radiant energy come from? Mass is not equivalent to energy. Mass is rather a kind of container for energy. And when objects are no longer at rest, that energy needs to go somewhere. But the thing is, on a macroscopic scale, so basically what we can observe as humans, so on a level that we can comprehend, this law almost never applies. So it's just such a trite thing to say, well, because E equals MC squared, therefore you can get vibrations. Vibrations as in what? Energy loss? Emitting heat? But speaking of popular science 101 buzzwords, the other part of the explanation for these vibrations is so baffling because it's just like, name dropping like she name drops isaac newton and neil degrasse tyson yeah i don't i don't know either she's just like do you know that neil degrasse tyson is the host of a tv show and i'm like so what like what what about neil degrasse tyson because apparently someone someone please let this man know because i don't think he knows his work is proof that paranormal activity exists she's also like oh yeah there's newton's law of universal gravitation and that doesn't apply all all that the law of universal gravitation says is that there exists gravitational pull between two masses that's all it says gravitational pull as a force is very weak it's one of the weakest forces and beyond that it doesn't cause paranormal activity or transmit information or cause vibrations i don't know what to tell you it just it just doesn't but, of course, there are still more arguments that Luna has in the bag. If neither of those worked, spoiler alert, they don't work, she would talk about electroencephalograms and brain activity, the development of neuroscience, and electromagnetic impulses. So, we have moved away from physics and are now talking about neuroscience for some reason because brain activity is powered by electricity and somehow that's supposed to explain something. I hate to break it to you guys, but I have spent enough time with resistors and sensors and capacitors and voltage meters and i don't know hex displays to know that electricity is unfortunately 
just not that special, you guys. Annoying? Yes. Special? Not really. There is no secret paranormal information that is being transmitted to you via electricity. Electricity just keeps your brain machinery moving. It's not doing anything magical. But I admit, I have to love that one of Luna's go-to ways to try to convince people is by telling them about the development of neuroscience. I mean, it does kind of prove that her point is not to make rational arguments but just to bulldoze over anyone who doesn't agree with her. But it's still funny, right? It's still funny to imagine her going up to someone and being like, oh, you don't agree with me? And then she just starts spouting verbatim the history section of the Wikipedia article on neuroscience. She's just like... The earliest study of the nervous system dates to ancient Egypt. Trepanation, the surgical practice of either drilling or scraping a hole into the skull for the purpose of curing head injuries or mental disorders or relieving cranial pressure, was first recorded during the Neolithic period. Manuscripts dating to 1700 BC indicate that the Egyptians had some knowledge about symptoms of brain damage, and the other person's just staring at you like, why are you talking about drilling into skulls? Like, what does that have to do with anything and luna's just like word vomiting at them yeah i bet i bet luna is fun at parties there's also a point in the book where luna says that her psychic abilities are the result of complex physics and i just want to say luna girl your college was not even accredited Physics at her college was probably like, well, there's no actual proof that the world is round. And also, today, we are going to be talking about how aliens have conquered Venus and are secretly in contact with us. The thing is, if they had just left all the psychic stuff at, oh, Luna just happens to have weird abilities, then I would have no issues with any of this. So why was all of this necessary? I will never understand. But you may be wondering, what are Luna's like actual abilities? Why is this such a big part of the book? And I got bad news for you. There is no internal logic as to what Luna's abilities can or cannot do. For example, consider this excerpt from the beginning of the book. Luna could pick a winning racehorse by going to the paddock and looking into the animal's eyes. But then we get this excerpt from later on in the book. Luna's instincts told her that Ellie would be supportive, but sometimes Luna's talents were not self-serving. Otherwise, she would have won the lottery by now. This is completely contradictory because horse betting is incredibly lucrative. If you could predict which horse will win every single time, 
I mean, I would say that that's a self-serving talent, but I guess, I what do I know, right? There's also the way that Luna's abilities affect the stupid romance subplot. Or rather, the way that Luna's abilities do not affect the stupid romance subplot. From the beginning of the book, Luna is really into her romantic love interest, Gaines, and Gaines is also really into Luna. We get both of their point of views, so there's no ambiguity about this. It's not like either of them are trying to hide their attraction or really have a reason to hide it other than, you know, it's kind of inconvenient that they would have to be long distance. But what passes for romantic tension in this book is Luna having an interaction with Gaines and then Luna subsequently freaking out like, does he like me? Does he like me? Does he like me? Am I being too obvious? Please, 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 please like me. And it's like that every single time they interact. Two grown adults in their mid-30s. Let, let me pull some examples for you, okay? Because I can tell, even from this side of the mic, I can tell that you're thinking it can't be that bad. Trust me, it is that bad. Luna's legs turned to rubber and the hair on her arms stood at attention. She thought she was going to faint. She wasn't sure how to take it. Was he interested in her or was he not? And this is Gaines talking. Doing a little scouting, decided to mix business with pleasure. Pleasure? That was almost fainting words. Luna got goosebumps. What kind of pleasure did he mean? Please note that literally in the previous chapter, he explicitly said that he came just to see her. It's just like, girl, do you have memory loss? Anyway, here, here are some more excerpts. She tried to read Gaines's body language. All she could decipher was a man of confidence without arrogance. Open, honest. At least that's what his body language was telling her. She wondered what her body language was telling him. She quivered at the thought. A mid-30s woman, you guys. Luna got goosebumps. Are we texting buddies now? She wasn't sure how to take it. Gaines hasn't, like, contacted her for a couple of weeks. Was he interested in her or was he not? My comment on the last excerpt was, oh, good grief, will you shut up? Because by that point, we were almost at the very end of the book and I could not bring myself to care. But the entire time, I was just thinking, what a useless psychic. If you can't even pick up on the most obvious feelings that someone is having, how do you call yourself a psychic? Especially when her literal interest is body language slash figuring out what people's emotions are. The only things that Luna figures out in the entire book are one, the table is significant. Two, Ellie, the art center owner's family who loved her, no kidding. And number three, Rowena doesn't seem very nice. The only thing at all useful or interesting or even the least bit impressive was figuring out that the table was significant. The issue 
with Luna's abilities is that there's no cohesion, there's no internal consistency, and the thing is, if the plot needs her to know it or figure it out, she'll figure it out. But if it's not convenient to the plot for her to figure it out, then she's not going to figure it out, no matter how obvious it is. But I think the most annoying thing character-wise about Luna having powers is that she attributes literally everything to being psychic. For example, early on in the book, Gaines comes to visit. Luna's watching him talk to her brother Cullen and she's wondering what Gaines is going to be up to later that day. She's wondering if he has some time to hang out. And so she's all, she certainly wasn't going to ask him. She tried the Jedi mind trick from the Star Wars series, beaming thoughts to Cullen. Ask him, ask him. And then five pages of boring conversation later, Cullen is like, what are your plans for the rest of the evening? Cullen asked Gaines. Luna thought that perhaps her Jedi mind tricks were working. And she doubles down on this because like a couple moments later, she's like, this is getting a little freaky. Hey, Luna, I got some bad news for you, girl. Asking people what they're going to be up to later that day is actually kind of a normal human thing to do. It's called small talk. Unfortunately, I don't think that you can really consider it a successful example of using a Jedi mind trick. Maybe that's just me, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure I'm right. Here's another instance where Luna is all, see how psychic I am? And I'm just over here like, I think you may just be socially unaware. I mean, no shade, because I am myself ridiculously socially unaware, but I also don't go around calling myself psychic whenever I manage to figure out whatever small talk someone's gonna bring up. Anyway, here's the excerpt where Gaines is driving Luna home after the Art Center grand opening event. You must be beat, Gaines offered. No, not really. That was why I smirked. It's as if I've drunk a gallon of coffee. Adrenaline, Gaines commented. That's exactly what I was thinking. Luna was astounded at the way they were in sync. Side note, have you ever heard a character in a book say they smirked? Like in general, smirking is only like a thing that happens in books, but I don't think I've ever heard a character go like, that's why I smirked. It just doesn't sound right. Anyway, Gaines, guessing that Luna is feeling adrenaline after an event that she herself just called hectic and exciting, is not particularly insightful. And I wouldn't really like point to it as an example of like, we're so psychically in sync. But then again, Gaines has this moment. Shoot! Gaines knew that wasn't always a good expression but he was in a playful mood. He was elated that Luna had called. As if reading his mind, Luna broke in with, that's not a very good word for a marshal to be using, is it? Gaines laughed out loud. I was thinking the same thing. How does she do that? I mean, it's almost as trite as observing that you must be feeling keyed up after an exciting event. So I guess that's why they're soulmates. 
Okay, let's wrap up our discussion of Luna's psychic abilities by pointing out two things. One, Luna's abilities are referred to again and again throughout the book as women's intuition, which is just ick. In general, I don't really like this type of specifically gendered thinking. It just feels ridiculously gatekeepy. For example, consider like a situation where you heard someone saying, oh, you're good at cooking. How womanly. And I think your response would be like, cooking is for everyone. Or as the chef in Ratatouille put it, anyone can cook. My spin on this for this particular situation, if being psychic is real, then anyone can be psychic. All right, if you think you're psychic, go live your dreams. Don't let anyone say, well, you're not a woman, so you can't do that. No, go out there, dream big. <laughs> let me know if you're able to move things with your mind. So that is all of the psychic stuff. But surprise, surprise, there is more to Luna than just being a really bad psychic. One side of Luna's personality is all about how good she is, how soft and pure and empathetic. Empathetic being a key word here. Put a pin in that. But first, here are some quotes illustrating how Luna is the most amazing, sensitive, sweet person to ever exist. Ellie was happy to see Wiley, Luna's dog, scampering about. She liked Luna. There was something about her that was special, different. Ellie couldn't quite put her finger on it, but she sensed that Luna was an acutely sensitive person. Luna had a habit of talking to things. Scientists called it anthropomorphizing, giving human qualities to inanimate objects. It is not an unusual occurrence with highly sensitive people who also experience great empathy. She wasn't embarrassed by it either, which simply added to the charm. Yes, that is the narrative itself, praising Luna. Although technically it is from her point of view, so you could consider it her praising herself. Which would be weirder? <laughs> Let me know. However, here's the really weird part. The twist when it comes to this soft, sensitive aspect of Luna's personality. Because Luna is not just empathetic. She is also an empath. An empath, as I discovered while writing this episode, is not just someone who is empathetic, but a person who paranormally absorbs the emotions of everyone around them. And you know what's funny? Luna's an empath, but she never absorbs how Gaines is feeling about her. How weird. Anyway, but I think in Luna's case, she's not actually an empath who is absorbing people's emotions. Let me explain what I mean. In Luna's backstory, we learned that there was an incident where someone spray painted big black letters on Luna's door with the words weirdo, lunatic, lunatic, get it? Yeah, it's, it's kind of stupid as an insult. But what's significant about this is that later in the book, we get this conversation between Luna and Gaines. What's so funny? Luna was about to stomp her feet in protest. He had to tell her. It was too funny to keep to himself. 
So I was thinking, I wonder what makes Luna tick. Luna tick? Get it? It wasn't the first time she had heard it, but coming from Gaines, it was rather hilarious. And when I read this, I was like, what is going on here? This insult has hurt Luna in the past. Why would she be totally fine with it just because it's coming from her love interest? Let me tell you why. I'm now going to pull a couple of quotes that are literally two pages apart. Two pages, okay? Here's quote one. Your table, Cullen mocked her. I thought you and the marshal were going to duke it out. Nope. He said it's mine if I want it, Luna stated with emphasis. This is something we have already established multiple times up to this point. Luna really, really, really wants this table for herself. Now, here is quote two. Again, literally two pages later. This is Luna speaking. How about this? You finish the table and call him. Tell him it's his if he wants it. Essentially, Colin was like, I know you like Gaines. We should come up with a plan so that he has an excuse to visit again. Because, of course, a grown man needs an excuse to come see his crush. So Luna's idea is to give him the table that she has already expressed numerous times that she wants for herself. Basically, Luna is willing to do whatever it takes to make Gaines like her, regardless of her own desires and her own comfort. I don't particularly like the term pick me because I personally find that it often shifts the blame back onto women. And I also find that it's sometimes used in misogynistic ways, kind of similarly to how the term basic is used. Like, yeah, I'm basic. I like pink and pop music and I don't know Starbucks drinks but that's not a reason for you to patronize me and look down on me and be like yeah you're basic but in this case Luna is clearly exhibiting what I have to call pick me behavior because there's not really any other way to describe it so maybe Luna is not an empath maybe she's just a chronic people pleaser Maybe she's just exhausted all the time because she's always trying to make people like her. I don't know. It's just a thought. However, Luna is convinced that she is an empath. And in fact, her favorite book is The Empath Survival Guide. You knew I was going to say that. I had heard previously some not so positive things about this book. So I checked out the Goodreads page and I pulled some absolute gems from the reviews. After reading this whole book, I pretty much just took away that I need to eat more protein. So this is a guide that helped me feel seen, even though it didn't really provide new tools to help me see, let alone survive. That was a three-star review from user Regina. The book offers specific strategies to manage the challenges of being an empath. I must say that some of the recommendations somewhat surprised me. Here is a quote from the book. If you are in an open space or chaotic office, surround the outer edge of your desk with plants or family or pet photos to create a psychological barrier. Sacred objects, such as a statue of Kuan Yin, 
Sorry if I butchered that. St. Francis or the Buddha, sacred beads, crystals or protective stones can set an energetic boundary too. Does the author suggest that empaths must necessarily believe in the power of sacred beads, crystals, or protective stones? That's a 2.5 star review from user Nika. Was hoping for some advice about managing raging empathy for all the things, all caps. But all I got was a bunch of trivia. Don't let yourself be manipulated by a narcissist. Thanks, never thought of doing that. Plain odd. Put a meditation pillow in front of your fridge because empaths tend to overeat. And entirely unscientific advice. Practice earthing. A lot of the book is a BuzzFeed-style listicle, giving important and vital advice, such as stay hydrated on a plane. The author claims to be a psychiatrist who helps people overcome problems caused by excessive empathy, but sentences such as, For years, I used to change hotel rooms frequently to find the one with the best energy, but then one day, my Taoist teacher told me that it's more empowering to stick with the room I'm given and to practice clearing the energy myself. Leave the reader honestly baffled as to what the hell they are reading. That's a one-star review from user Anna. My favorite quote from these review excerpts has to be, Put a meditation pillow in front of your fridge because empaths tend to overeat. Listen, when I'm hungry, a pillow, meditation or not, is definitely not getting in my way, okay? But... The flip side of Luna's sensitive, people-pleasing personality is something you would probably never guess, but she is also strangely bratty and immature. And by the end of the book, this aspect of her personality turns her into possibly the most annoying character in the entire book. My first example is this moment where Luna wants Gaines, her love interest, to take her home after dinner, but Cullen offers. He's like, want me to drop you off, sis? Luna's reaction to this, she thought she was going to punch him, which seems like a bit of an overreaction. It feels much more like a moment between siblings who are kids and not really a moment between siblings who are in their late 30s. But the thing is, it's Luna who's making this moment feel weird. Cullen is just being normal and Luna is acting like a child. You guessed it, that's about to become a prominent theme. There is also this moment where Luna is talking to Gaines and she gets frustrated. We already went over this moment earlier. What's so funny? Luna was about to stomp her feet in protest. Again, this is not reflective of a mature woman. It evokes the behavior of of a toddler who's about to throw a tantrum. Speaking of toddlers, my note for this next excerpt is Luna sounds five years old. Here's what I'm talking about. I told you there was something about this table. Na, 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 na. Cute, isn't she? Cullen shook his head. 
rightly charming, Gaines folded his arms in satisfaction. Yeah, grown woman infantilizing themselves and going, na 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 na. It's really cute. It's really charming. You gotta love it. There's this moment where Luna isn't really being like bratty or immature, but the dialogue is so childlike in an almost picture book way. Oh, Chi Chi. I do like him very much, but he lives so far away, Luna frowned. But here's a truly bratty moment when they're all at dinner and everyone's trying to convince Luna to store the will in a safe where it will be, you know, safe. Luna looked at Chi Chi and pouted. They're picking on me. Luna tried to kick Chi Chi, but hit Gaines's leg instead. Ouch, what was that for? Luna gave him a blank look. I have no idea what you're talking about, Marshall Gaines. And in case you think that this is all just an act and she's actually normal, I am going to show you what I consider the ultimate proof that Luna is just an incredibly immature person. Here we go. He was kind of cute for an older guy, Sabrina said. She's referring to Gaines. Huh? Luna thought. An older guy? Is she serious? Then she realized, for a 20-something-year-old, anyone over 30 was ancient. He's not that old, Luna disputed. Sure, he has a couple of gray hairs, but he's just a little older than Cullen. Right, Sabrina realized her faux pas. Sorry, I'm used to the younger, gangly, scruffy guys. Most of them are a mess, which is probably why I thought he was cute. I bet he was really handsome when he was younger. Again with the age difference. Just wait until you cross the 30-year-old mile marker zone. You do realize you will be 30-something at some point. Do you want to be considered old when you get there? Luna asked simply. Sabrina stopped for a moment. Yeah, but no, I mean, yeah, I'll be 30-something. But no, I don't want people to think I'm old. But won't I be? Luna wasn't sure how to deal with that question. Yes, you will be older, but how you age is up to you. Look at me, for instance. I'm 10 years older than you. Cullen is 12 years older, and Ellie is a few decades older. Do you consider any of us old? As in decrepit? Haggard? Of course not, Sabrina was sputtering. I would never call you old. Or Ellie, for that matter. Good, let's try to keep that word out of our vocabulary. I will never get over the absolute immaturity that Luna exhibits here. And this entire passage, the first time I went through this book, I cringed so hard that I just skimmed over it. But then I realized I was going to need to pull this passage and analyze it. So here we are. Again, the sacrifices. First off, I am not necessarily defending Sabrina's word choice here. A young adult calling someone over 30 old could definitely be hurtful, and I myself have been guilty of it in the not-so-far-away past. And it's not like I'm proud of it, but... I do think we need to remember that a young adult who's like 19 or 20 calling someone over 30 
old doesn't mean the young person thinks the older person is literally falling apart. And more importantly, if you are a grown adult in your 30s and a teenager slash young adult calls your love interest old and your first response is to freak out on this young person, do you think I'm old? decrepit, haggard. If that is your first response, then who do you think is being more immature here? I'll give you a hint. It's not the teenager. To Sabrina, an almost 40-year-old man is old enough to be her father. Would Luna like it better if Sabrina was like, oh yeah, that's a hot guy I would totally go for? No! then Luna would be freaking out in a completely different way. And what makes this lecture so deeply unsettling is that Luna is constantly infantilizing herself. She's constantly acting bratty and immature and weirdly childlike, kind of as if she considers herself to be a teenager or a young adult instead of a 30-plus-year-old woman. And it kind of feels like the real reason Luna is upset here is because she forever wants to maintain this bratty, adorable, forever 19 persona that she's got going on. And I've got bad news, but unfortunately that's not possible for anyone. But it's so indicative of how fundamentally petty and immature and unpleasant Luna is that when her ego is wounded, her first instinct is to lash out at someone who is not only so much younger than her, but with whom Luna has an incredibly unbalanced power dynamic. Sabrina is a college student. She's doing an unpaid internship at the art center. And basically, she's working there because she wants a letter of recommendation so that when it comes time to renew her scholarship, she's more likely to be able to get it. And the reason that Sabrina is in Luna's cafe is because Luna wanted to go running around with Gaines all day, so she had Sabrina cover for her. The book frames it as like, oh, Sabrina's so nice, she's so enthusiastic, she really wants to do this. And I'm like, no, she's only acting this way because she doesn't have any choice in the situation. Literally, her college education is hanging on this. So when Luna freaks out on Sabrina, it takes a situation that already feels exploitative, like, oh yeah, can you just like run my cafe all day so I can go hang out with gangs? It takes that situation and it makes it feel even more gross. Sabrina has no choice but to be there and to play nice or she's gonna get fired. And Luna is punching down on this hardworking college student for no other reason than that her ego has been bruised. So yeah, that's Luna. And of course, because Luna is so special, you know we had to get this moment. For the most part, he, Gaines, hardly noticed women, although a lot of them noticed him. With his work and his son, 
particularly his relationship history. He didn't pursue anything that resembled one. But that woman, Luna, she was different. Special, a little kooky, but that was a major part of her charm. See? Luna's special. She's not like the other girls. I normally find this annoying, but in this case, I really hope that Luna is not like the other girls because we do not need more Lunas in this world. Let's move on to Cullen, Luna's brother. Here is our introduction to Cullen. Gives you a pretty good idea of what he's like as a person, you know, his personality, his perspective, his worldview. Cullen Bodman was a typical clean-cut, all-American guy. He was nearly six feet tall with sandy brown hair and green eyes. True to his name, he was a good-looking lad. He had a lean and trim build, physically fit. Woodworking had made his biceps the envy of most guys at the gym. Oh, sorry, never mind. We are given no idea of what he's like. Oh wait, here's a better description. He wanted to be enthusiastic about his work, something he shared with his sister. They were both creative and sensitive, and they felt smothered if they couldn't express themselves. However, unlike his sister, Colin often disguised his compassionate and sympathetic side. He needed to be level-headed, responsible. But underneath the cool, contemplative exterior was a kind, considerate, and tender man. It had long been an inner quest to be able to merge the two. See, he's not just a musclehead. He's also apparently kind, considerate, and tender. As someone who actually read the book, that's news to me, but I am glad that I'm being informed of this fact because the only thing I picked up from the actual story is that following this guy around is about as interesting as watching paint dry. And that's probably why, despite supposedly being a co-protagonist, there are very few parts of this book that are actually from Cullen's point of view, which is hilarious, considering that we get point of view chapters from the most random people. Also, for the big showdown, the big climactic finale, Cullen isn't even there because he gets a flat tire and forgot his phone, so he can't, like, call anyone yes you heard that correctly he isn't even there for the only exciting part of the book he only gets there once everything is over i just have to point this out even for an author who fixates on the most minor side characters and meaningless subplots colin just wasn't that interesting but don't worry we still have plenty to talk about Going back to the description I just read you, we're told that he is level-headed and responsible. If you are getting Jason Bennett flashbacks, that is not a coincidence because one of the first things we learn about Cullen is that his main dynamic with Luna is being her big, strong, manly protector because Luna is just too pure for this world. Growing up, he had always been his sister's protector. He knew she could take care of herself, but he also knew she had a kind, vulnerable soul. 
Her empathy could lead her down paths where people did not appreciate her generosity. So Luna can take care of herself, huh? Let, let's see what the book actually says. So we learned that in college, Luna's roommate needed money. And so Luna gave this person her ATM card and was like, I completely trust you to take only the money you need. And the roommate was like, psych, I'm going to clean out your account. So Luna can take care of herself, huh? Yeah, if Luna is this naive, maybe Colin is right. Maybe she does need a big, strong, manly man watching over her. So she doesn't, I don't know, hand over her debit card to random people. Maybe she really is just too kind, too sweet, too empathetic for this evil scheming world you know maybe women do actually need men to look after them that's just how women are you know <laughs> yeah how about no i have definitely been naive at many points throughout my life embarrassingly naive but i still have never once been naive enough to give someone complete access to my bank account. I'm afraid that's kind of a Luna problem. But it's all good because Cullen gave her the $3,000 she had stupidly let slip through her hands without a lecture or reprimand. So yeah, Cullen is a pro when it comes to protecting Luna, especially when he has to diss people who don't like her. Remember that incident I was telling you about earlier where someone sprayed Luna Tick on her door? Well, Cullen found out that there was this kid who did it. He stalked the kid home from school. What a good guy here. He stalked this kid home and then he confronted the kid's mother. And here's what Cullen says. While my sister may have beliefs different from yours, I can assure you she is not weird. In fact, she is a highly spiritually evolved human being, much more than I can say for you, given your lack of tolerance. I don't know what you are teaching your children, but if I so much see your son or any member of your family near my sister again, you will wish you lived in another country. Harassment and hate are not welcome here. You guys, I have clearly been doing something wrong because I am... 99% sure that my sibling does not refer to me as a highly spiritually evolved human being. Clearly, I am going to have to lecture and reprimand, Cullen's words, my sibling about this very important matter. I am just going to have to put it out there. You may not have realized this, but actually, I am a highly spiritually evolved human being, and you are now going to have to go around telling everyone this, okay? Like, that's just how it has to be. I'm sure that will be well received. Speaking of Luna and Cullen, however, I'm going to point out this weirdly incestuous moment. So, Luna is talking to Cullen. I was hoping I could get one more week out of this manicure. I get them so rarely, Luna held up her fingers. See? Pretty, eh? Very. 
Cullen never noticed things like that on his sister. Other women, yes. Luna, not so much. He figured if she wanted him to notice something, she would be quick to bring it to his attention. Not that he wasn't aware of his sister's good looks. But it was more her aura that he appreciated and took notice of. He had to admit, she had looked stunning the night of the opening. Cullen's all, my sister is hot, but I totally never notice, except when I do. Methinks the man doth protest too much. Otherwise, we don't really get anything interesting about Cullen because his role in the story is mostly plot related. He waffles about opening the table throughout most of the book. He's like, I'll do it. No, never mind. I'm too busy. Okay, I'll do it. He also badgers Luna about games. He's like, you totally like him. And she's like, OMG, I do not. And then he finally gets around to opening up the table. And then he's no longer needed. So he disappears off screen for the rest of the book. He has nothing else going on. He has no friends. He has no hobbies. He has no life outside of work. He's a static character who experiences no growth throughout the story because he's already the perfect specimen of manly American manhood. And that is the apex, the summit, the final goal of human evolution. It just doesn't get any better than a typical clean-cut all-American guy. Like seriously, what more could anyone reasonably ask for? Come on, that's called an impossible standard. With that in mind, let's move on to our other perfect specimen of all-American masculinity, Luna's love interest, Marshall Gaines. Marshall is his title, by the way. It's not his name. Uh, Marshall, because he works for the U.S. Marshals. Marshall Gaines is such a generic love interest. Now, you know I am overly critical when it comes to romance, but I think that even people who don't read romance would still agree with me that Gaines feels like he was cut straight out of pretty much any generic small-town romance, which is part of why I'm so insistent that this should be marketed as a cozy mystery, not a thriller. Thrillers tend to have sexy bad boy love interests, and a lot of cozy mysteries have interests, have love interests, who are almost identical identical to Gaines, right down to working for law enforcement. But anyway, the so-called romance in this book is just so boring. Both Luna and Gaines are clearly interested in one another right from the beginning, and the only obstacle is really just them being long distance. That's literally it. Otherwise, it's basically an insta-love romance, which is my least favorite type of romance ever. The minute she shook his hand, she got all goofy. His deep, dark, blue eyes were framed with thick eyelashes, the kind women would pay a lot of money for. He reminded her of the actor Jay Hernandez, who played the new Magnum P.I. on television. And that smile, 
Even though it was a somber occasion, his smile was warm. He exuded authority in a very nonchalant way. Confident, but not cocky. Luna estimated he was maybe a couple of years older than Cullen. Gaines had a hint of gray at his temples. He was slightly taller than Cullen and a little more buff. Fit, but not a muscle head. If you are a romance connoisseur at all, then you can immediately tell that this is going to be an incredibly boring romance because there is no conflict, ever. They have no communication difficulties. They have no differences in perspective. They don't even have baggage in their romantic pasts. And if you noticed Luna's immediate comparison of Gaines to Cullen and thought that was a little weird as her first impression of her love interest, then you are right, it is weird. Like I said, weird incesty stuff. But beyond that, Gaines and Cullen are basically the same person. They're both loyal, they're both highly moral, they're both good looking, they both primarily interact with Luna through teasing, and that's about as much personality as either of them get. Cullen is already the pinnacle of a good, old-fashioned, all-American boy, which is what Luna's love interest must also be, because that is the worldview of this particular book. But even if the romance doesn't give us anything to talk about, Gaines's backstory, it gives us a lot to unpack. Since this is a book where even minor characters get literal pages of backstory, you bet Gaines gets an entire chapter. Here we go. Marshall Christopher Gaines had been born in Tuckahoe, New York. His father was a police officer whose ancestors had come from Scotland. His mother, Bettina, was from Brazil. She was a stunning woman with black hair and blue eyes. The family often joked how lucky Christopher was to inherit his mother's good looks, and most likely her intuition, or at the very least, to respect it. Growing up, he had been a good student and a fine athlete. Much to his father's chagrin, he had no interest in pursuing a career in professional baseball. He wanted to be involved in something larger than himself, something for the greater good. Hmm? What's, what's that? You, you want me to skip to the interesting stuff? I feel you, but also you would drop this book like a hot potato long before you ever got to Gaines' backstory, which is, by the way, the entirety of chapter six. Fortunately for you, my impatient listeners, no, I'm just kidding, you guys are so patient, thank you. I have waited through all of the filler already, so I'm going to, sh- I'm going to skip, not skip, skip straight to the story of his first marriage and what led to his divorce. Here are the relevant excerpts, and I am skipping around a bit. He had met Lucinda Dawson when she first arrived, when he first arrived in Alabama. She was a bouncy blonde, cute. Of course, he was attracted to her, and she was smitten with his worldly ways. The fact that he was a federal marshal scored him a lot of points with her. Little did she know how demanding his work would be and that she would begin to tire of his never being around. 
She thought if they married and had a child, he might be inclined to be more family-oriented. But she was wrong. For Gaines, getting married seemed like a good idea at the time. He adored Lucinda, but always questioned if he genuinely loved her. He liked her a lot. And not unlike women, men must also feel their biological clock ticking, or maybe it's their social standing. At 27, he thought it was time to settle down, despite not having the slightest inkling as to what that really meant. After they moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, both of them realized they were better at being friends than spouses. Gaines rented an apartment while they shared joint custody of Carter. In the beginning, Lucinda tried her best to gain full custody, citing his workload, but Gaines's supervisor promised they would make every effort to schedule him to make sure he had time for his son. What really stands out to me here in these excerpts is that Gaines is not willing to make any compromises or sacrifices in his relationship with Lucinda. From the very beginning, he doesn't know if he actually loves her, but he marries her anyway. He's questioning his feelings for her, but he chooses to have a kid with her. He chooses to have a kid, even though he apparently has no idea what that entails in terms of effort and time commitment. Which, I mean, is weird. Does he have no friends who have children or relatives with children? And, you know, I'm sure the real answer is just that he expected Lucinda to do all of the childcare. But my point is, when Gaines is finally faced with the prospect of losing custody of his son, he's finally like, no, 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 wait, 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 I can actually do something about my work-life balance. I just couldn't do that, you know, for the person I made a lifelong commitment to. I just couldn't do that, you know, when my kid was born. I couldn't do that until I literally had no choice if I wanted to maintain even partial custody of my son. Such a loyal guy. Such a stand-up dude. How does Luna put it? Good-looking, smart, and sensitive. Definitely crush-worthy material. Yeah, a sensitive guy who can't pick up on his wife feeling emotionally neglected. Or maybe he just doesn't care, which would be way worse. A smart guy who didn't know that kids are hard work. Despite what the narrative tells us over and over and over again, if we go by what we're actually shown, Gaines kinda sucks as both a love interest and also as a human being. One, he's selfish. Two, despite his clear moral failings, he's able to convince everyone else that he's this superior moral being. Here's what I mean. Luna was enjoying getting to know Gaines on a more personal level. He had ethics and was extremely conscientious. Like, no, just no. I know it's Cullen who is constantly being described as straight-laced or whatever, but honestly, the uptight guy who I cannot stand is Gaines. For example, towards the end of the book, when we finally get back to Cullen and Luna after chapters and chapters that we have to spend with characters who are not billed as protagonists. Anyway, after that, we learn that Cullen 
not Colin, sorry, Gaines has not been in contact with Luna in weeks. Putting aside the question of why Luna just doesn't like shoot him a text like, hey, how's it going? There's literally no reason for Gaines not to have contacted her. He wasn't too busy to. He was still interested. He just didn't feel like it, I guess. He's supposed to be sensitive and conscientious. And you're telling me that he couldn't even think about Luna's feelings for five seconds? I'm not saying he should have been flying in to see her every weekend. I'm just saying that it takes two seconds to send a hey what's going on text. The perfect love interest everyone. Okay, I am very done talking about Gaines, so let's move on to our villain couple, Arthur and Rowena, and we will be starting with Arthur. The number one way I would describe Arthur is perpetually angry. His favorite pastime is screaming at anyone who is unfortunate enough to cross his path. And overall, his entire character is just being an entitled old rich guy who is desperate to hold on to his money and influence. Realistic? Yes. Compelling? Not really. But a better word than realistic might be recognizable because honestly, Arthur's behavior is a, is a little bit soap opera. Every time he yelled, all I could hear in my head was my creative writing teacher going, stop having your characters yell at each other. And now I know what she means. Yelling is a little bit too gossip girl to take seriously, especially if it happens all the time. However, Arthur is very much a recognizable archetype. You've probably met men in your time who are like Arthur, and I certainly have. They're not fun to be around in real life, and they're definitely not fun to be around in fiction. And the issue is, Arthur is in such a large chunk of the book, and every time he comes out, it's like, not again, because you always know how he's going to act. But also, villain point of views are very rarely interesting because for the most part, villains don't tend to evolve or develop throughout the story. They have to keep on being evil because otherwise, there wouldn't be anything more to talk about. Although, honestly, if there exists an incredibly character-driven story where the villain experiences growth over the course of the book and ends up not carrying out their evil master plan. If that exists, I would definitely read it. Like, please let me know. But in general, most villain point of views are best as a seasoning, a sprinkling, a treat. Otherwise, it just becomes tiring. It becomes repetitive. And honestly, most villains are not particularly fun to hang out with, particularly villains like Arthur who are rooted in real archetypes that we have all met and had to deal with. But the good news is that Arthur is maybe unintentionally a funny character, at least at first. Here are some examples of Arthur just 
raging at everyone. This is Arthur from the prologue. Here he's getting mad about the furniture with the will hidden inside it being sold off. I told you to oversee the estate sale. The vein in his neck was pulsing as he unleashed his fury at his wife. She could have sworn there was spit coming out of his mouth. Spit just coming out of his mouth, flying everywhere. Here's Arthur trying to get his wife Rowena to call his mistress so that they can get the inventory of the furniture and find out who bought what. Rowena! Arthur screamed at her. Get on the damn phone and get Amber in here. See, what did I tell you? He's screaming. And in case you're curious as to how this man answers the phone, here you go. Yes, what is it? He roared. Whoa, okay, buddy. You might want to get that roaring checked out because are you an angry old man? Or are you an angry old lion? Actually, maybe he's the big bad wolf because here is a quote from the point of view of Jerry the private detective. He was certain that Arthur was wearing out the carpet in his office, huffing and puffing. See, the big bad wolf huffed and he puffed and he blew all my interest out of the story because by this point in the book, I was sick of having to constantly switch back to Arthur and Rowena. And that's not a good thing because their chapters were basically the only times in the book where anything actually moved forward. But I saved my favorite Arthur getting angry moment for last. He was shrieking at the top of his lungs. I, I, <laughs> please take a moment to remember that we, we are supposed to be taking that moment seriously. That, that, that is meant in all sincerity. But this may be kind of a surprise, but I am going to take a moment to praise the book. What I like is that Arthur's anger isn't depicted as scary so much as it's depicted as impotent and frankly pathetic. I think it's too often the case that anger is depicted as strength as a superpower that allows you to do crazy things and come up with complex plots. I'm going to throw out a guess here, a surmise, that what's at the root of this phenomenon is that anger, especially in men, especially in thrillers or mysteries or similar genres, isn't generally considered emotional. It's considered instead a kind of dark force that's essentially forcing you to do things. You can see this most clearly in revenge stories where anger is the motivating force, the thing that keeps the hero or the villain going. My issue is that I don't see anger as a clarifying emotion an emotion that condenses your thoughts into a single driving force that allows you to single-mindedly pursue an all-consuming goal. Personally, I more often experience and see others experience anger as an emotion that clouds your judgment, clouds your perception, leads you to make questionable decisions, in general, anger doesn't
doesn't make you a cold-blooded mastermind. It more often makes you impulsive, rash, prone to making bad decisions. Anger is a powerful emotion like any other powerful emotion. It's not special, it's not rare, and it's generally hard to make it interesting or compelling without dragging in trauma porn to explain why this particular person's anger is compelling and unique. And I think that our second bad thriller, The Maidens, is probably the epitome of this. So many angry, traumatized people in that book. So what I like about Arthur is that his anger doesn't fundamentally change who he is or what he's capable of. He's lazy, he's incompetent, he's useless. He doesn't even show up for the final confrontation. Nobody is really scared of him, and the only way that Arthur has any influence or control is through his money and societal power. And I really like that. So there we go. A bite-sized chunk of praise. So savor that for a moment before we get back to the program. Finally, I'm just going to point out something that you have probably already deduced, which is that Arthur is a very abusive husband. In the prologue, right off the bat, Arthur is angry. So angry that Rowena flinches and we get this moment. After years of marriage to Arthur, she very rarely flinched anymore, which is like, ah, yikes. A lot of Arthur's anger throughout the book is directed at Rowena. For example, there's this quote which we already pulled earlier. Rowena! Arthur screamed at her. Get on the damn phone and get Amber in here. And there's a point in the book where Arthur's like, we need to reduce the staff because I don't want people nosing around the house. Side note, this logic makes no sense. They already know that the will is not in the house, so why would they care if people are nosing around? Anyway, what I'm getting at here is that Arthur is saying that Rowena now needs to do all of the cooking and cleaning. Rowena's like, when did I become the chief cook and bottle washer around here? And Arthur's like, oh, stop pouting. And I'm like, shut up, Arthur, because why is it necessarily Rowena who has to do all of the housework? I just find this expectation to be really controlling and unfair. But honestly, the most glaring evidence of Arthur's abusive behavior is an offhand musing by Rowena. And surprise, here's another compliment. The casual nature of this remark is actually really chilling. See, I am making a sincere effort to point out things that I thought were good or effective or which had the potential to be either. Here's this moment. If she took off now, Arthur would go nuclear and cut off her credit cards. That could be extremely embarrassing. I love the casual, offhand nature of Rowena stating that if she does something Arthur doesn't like, he's going to retaliate in an incredibly drastic way. He's going to literally cut off her finances, and Rowena's commentary on this is so blasé. She's just like, well, that would be embarrassing. Because that's how she grapples with the reality of her situation, of her abusive marriage. 
she downplays his potential retaliation because it would be incredibly difficult for her to handle that realization when she's not in a place to get out of the situation. But I'm not actually praising the author or the story because I get the feeling that the effectiveness of this moment is completely unintentional. And what you're actually supposed to be getting from this moment is something completely different. And if you're wondering what I mean, let's take a look at how the narrative treats Rowena. Because the way that this book treats her is so egregious, especially when you consider the way that it treats its unethical and evil male characters. Rowena is a very familiar archetype, particularly in movies. She's the beautiful, selfish, annoying young woman who marries a rich guy. She's essentially Meredith, is that her name, from The Parent Trap or Sarah Jessica Parker's character from The First Wives Club. The vilification of these types of women is incredibly annoying to me for a very simple reason. The men that they marry or get into relationships with are often depicted as victims or people that we should feel sorry for, despite the fact that these are grown men who are perfectly cognizant of the decisions that they are making. And specifically in this book, Hidden, it's implied multiple times throughout the narrative that Rowena is a worse person than Arthur, and I just don't think that's true. Arthur is the one who's involved with the Irish mob. No, don't don't ask me. You don't want to know. But he is. He's involved with the Irish mob. He's the one who gambles away all the money, and he's a complete failure at running his father's company. Arthur blows up at everyone constantly. He's screaming and shrieking and bellowing, and he's incredibly abusive to his wife. But this is how Rowena is described time and again. Arthur knew he could be demanding, but Rowena's behavior made Arthur look like a saint in comparison. Because, you know, Rowena is the one who's going around yelling at the staff. No, wait, that's Arthur. Never mind. The staff secretly referred to her as Rowena Deville after Cruella Deville from 101 Dalmatians. Because, again, Rowena is the one you should be angry at. She's the one who's verbally abusive towards the staff. No, wait, never mind. I guess they're just totally fine with the way Arthur treats them because they don't give him any nicknames. The only thing Rowena did was marry Arthur and be his mostly unwilling accomplice. In return, Arthur yells at her until she flinches, controls her finances, and forces her to do domestic work without even offering to split up the responsibilities. And the Rowena bashing escalates throughout the book. For example, Arthur's father, Randolph Millstone, he is described by the narrative as like one of the good guys, one of the good men, you know, like that. He's like good old-fashioned American gentleman. You, you get what I mean. Well, this is what he thought of Rowena based on absolutely nothing except her appearance. To be perfectly honest about it, 
Randolph considered Rowena, who had only been married to Arthur for a few months, a stuck-up, first-class bitch. And that relatively benign assessment was only because of her wardrobe. Without that, he thought, she would have been no different than most of the women you could pick up on certain downtown Boston street corners. What a gentleman. Truly, one of the good guys. So sad that they're going extinct. And throughout the book, Arthur's thoughts about Rowena escalate to scary levels of aggression and violence. Arthur kept his temper under control. Another thing to slow down the process, he wanted to choke Rowena. And this is framed as totally reasonable because the narrative has demonized Rowena in a way that I find to be completely out of proportion with who she actually is and what she's actually done. But no, let's just shade Rowena and call her Cruella DeVille because she used to be a quote-unquote high-class hooker, which is apparently quote-unquote not a real job. And oh, also she's had plastic surgery and she married Arthur for his money. Clearly the devil incarnate. Like, come on, are you being serious right now? Is the implication here that she deserves the abuse, that it would be okay if he did indeed act on his impulses and choke her? Is that what we are saying here? And I hate all of this so much because it's relying entirely on misogynistic stereotypes to relate to us that Rowena is the nastiest, Rowena is the evilest, Rowena is the one to blame for absolutely everything. And what about Arthur? What, what about him? Does he not bear any responsibility in this? Apparently not as much as Rowena. But if your misogyny alarms have started to go off, they're about to reach ear-splitting levels when we discuss the minor side characters that I mentioned earlier, Amber and Janine. Let's start with Amber. Amber is Arthur's affair partner. Well, one of his affair partners and she handled the sale of Randolph's furniture after his death. Here's how she is introduced in her one appearance. Amber was in her mid-twenties, over bleached blonde hair with extensions, fake blue contact lens eyes, and a bosom that could knock someone over from three feet away. Amber was wearing a very tight-fitting knit skirt and a low-cut cardigan. As the two women walked toward the dining room, Rowena noted that it was a good thing Amber had a big butt. Otherwise, she would topple over and fall on her face. Not that Rowena hadn't had her fair share of body enhancements, but Amber was over the top, so to speak. Yeah, that's, that's really funny. Then a little later, this happens when Rowena offers Amber a scone. Amber gave an annoying giggle. Oh no, thank you. I'm watching my weight. Rowena suppressed a groan. You have a lovely figure, Amber. Doesn't she, Arthur? Said the spider to the fly. Arthur tried to answer that in the most non-incriminating way. You're a lovely young woman. 
Note how Arthur is framed in this moment, not as the predatory, abusive man he actually is, but as a hempacked husband who's squirming under his wife's scrutiny. So that's Amber. Hooray! Women hating women. You love to see it. But in case you think that this is just Rowena being unpleasant because she's Rowena, no, because she's Cruella de Vil, how about we switch over to Luna and see how she treats a woman who may or may not be interested in her love interest. This is my friend, Christopher Gaines. Luna put a protective hand on his arm. Janine held out her hand. Nice to meet you, Christopher Gaines. I'm Janine May. I'm the shopkeeper and potter. She held onto his hand a few seconds too long as far as Luna was concerned. I'm looking for a service for four. Do you sell them in sets? For you, of course. Janine batted her eyes. Gaines was laughing softly. What was that all about? I sensed a bit of tension between the two of you. Luna was totally forthright. She's a vampire. Yes, this is my male friend, which clearly means that he belongs to me and only me. In case it's not totally clear what type of character Janine is supposed to be, here's this quote. She reminded Luna of Samantha from Sex and the City. What a great way to describe a woman whose worst sin is mildly flirting with a guy who is not even in a relationship. Also, note that neither Amber nor Janine get a backstory in a book where literal off-page characters who never appear get backstories. Because clearly, these are evil women who need to be dehumanized. That may have gotten a little too serious, so let's lighten the mood. To recap, those are the three main issues with this book. Pacing, editing, and characters. Now let's add on a couple of bonus issues that are completely unserious. One, the humor. It's weird, it's unfunny, but it's so unfunny that it circles back around to being funny. Example one. It was an exceptionally large piece of raw amethyst, the stone for intuition, psychic abilities, relieving stress and anxiety. Luna was hoping it would activate all those properties in her that very moment. Ah yes, you have admired that before. Chi-Chi gracefully swept her hand in the direction of the quartz with its brilliant shades of purple. It calls to you. Uh, we better not get too deep with Marshall Gaines here. He already thinks I'm a little quirky, Luna quipped. Gaines cleared his throat in an amusing way. How does one clear one's throat in an amusing way? Question for my listeners. He pinched his forefinger and thumb together, measuring about an inch. Yes, this much. Ha ha. If this Marshall thing doesn't work out for you, you should consider being a stand-up comic, Luna mocked. You and my brother can take it on the road. Steve Martin and Martin Short, look out. Chi-Chi let out a big hoot. 
You two are both very funny. It is nice to hear people laugh. Sometimes the seriousness of the world can be heavy on one's shoulders. We must lighten the load as much as we can for each other. If not in deed, in word, it is important to have a sense of humor. I couldn't agree with you more, Gaines said. I seem to have been doing a lot of laughing since I got here. Yeah, I don't think Steve Martin is feeling the heat here. Or consider this moment. Fair warning, I am going to really struggle with the accent, so... What's all this, Luna? Ha! Huh, not mine, she broke into a hillbilly accent. This here, Marshall done himself some shopping. Got hisself some purdy dishes and glasses. Real kind of glasses. Not them jelly jars, and guess what? They all match. Yes, indeedy. Bought hisself some fine things, he did. <laughs> okay, I tried the accent a little bit at the end. Gaines hooted. You people are too much fun. Okay, but like, what does being a hillbilly have to do with like buying too much stuff? Am I, am I missing something here? Is that like a stereotype? There's also this moment. She, Rowena, boarded the jet with the company logo for Millstone Enterprises painted on the side. A huge M-E. She chuckled when she saw it. It hadn't occurred to her before. It spelled me. Indeed it is. Just for me. Ha! I mean, yes, M-E does spell me. It, it's giving, hey kids, spelling is fun vibes. Don't at me. I love that song. Oh, d does everyone hate that song? Okay, whatever. I like it. Okay, I like cheesy happy songs. So, But the creme de la creme of this book's humor is this scene. I need to share the butt prints with you, okay? That's a nice looking table. Gaines tilted his head toward the piece on which Cullen was resting his butt. Cullen immediately jumped away and grabbed one of the decorative towels Luna had placed on the baker's rack and began rubbing the area where he had squatted. Luna couldn't help but giggle. Then she thought about butt prints instead of fingerprints and started laughing harder. Both men stared at her as she got more hysterical, pointing at the table. She finally caught her breath. I guess you could substitute them for fingerprints. By that point, she was howling. Of course, most of her reaction was nerves. Her mind swiftly went into, I'm such an idiot mode. Gaines let out a guffaw. I'll keep that in mind. Imagine if we still had to use ink pads. Luna and Cullen were almost doubled over. For well over a decade, prints were taken electronically with a scanner. Although I don't think the scanners they're using now could capture a whole lot of data. Here's an idea, Luna snickered. You put people on a conveyor belt like they do at the grocery store. Everyone was having a good, hearty laugh. Wiley lay on the floor and put his paws over his face. That brought on more hilarity. It took several minutes for the group to regain some degree of poise. The air was electric with delight. Luna could feel it, as did Cullen and Gaines. Cullen squeezed his jaw tenderly. My face hurts. Gaines blinked back tears. Is this scene face hurting kind of funny? No, I 
didn't find it funny at all. I just found it kind of like weird and cringy. But I did get to text my sibling butt prints with no context and got a very confused answer back. So here's what I want you to do, okay? I would like you to do this to a poor, innocent, unsuspecting person in your life. Text them butt prints with no context and see how they react. Spread the joy. Hashtag butt prints. Besides the humor, there are also some extremely sitcom slash cartoonish moments in the book that I need to point out. Here's the first one. Rowena locked the unit and broke every traffic violation on the books, hurtling past stop signs, clipping corners, driving over people's lawns. The yeehaw wild ride broke Arthur's spell. He started to shriek. Rowena, watch out! What are you doing? Are you out of your mind? Slow down, Rowena! Stop! The final turn into the enormous driveway was coming up. Arthur buried his head in his hands as she careened past the stone lions at the gate. She missed them by millimeters. If the car had one more coat of paint on it, it would have been scraped off the statues. Arthur was relieved the gates were open, or they would be a tangled mess of wrought iron, sawdust, and metal. The car came to a screeching halt. I can see that as like a really silly sequence in a kid's movie. Here's the second excerpt, which is even more cartoonish. This scene does require a little bit of context, but I will provide that in a moment. Rowena heard his, George's, footsteps getting closer. She had nothing with which to defend herself. The footsteps stopped in front of the cabinet she was hiding in. The doors were pulled open, and both she and George started screaming! Exclamation point. It was hard to tell which one was more freaked out. Rowena was beating George over the head, trying to push him away. He was covering his head, trying to shield himself from the large leather handbag being used to pummel his skull. Straight out of Looney Tunes, I am telling you. George is a subplot I skipped over entirely. Um, basically, the context for this scene is that I told you earlier Rowena's master plan is to like hide in the cabinet and wait for the store to close and then she's gonna like search the furniture essentially the thing is Rowena found out that Colin bought the furniture because Colin bought the furniture from the dealer who originally bought the furniture the original dealer who bought it was this hillbilly guy named George and he decided to also head down and see what all the fuss was about so he didn't hide in the you know showroom but instead he snuck in after hours so that's the context that's how rowena gets caught she <laughs> they run into each other essentially have a big fight and luna rushes in it's all ridiculous but here's the quote that really sums up who george is as a character thankfully he george didn't look like a total mess just a worn-out handyman with a flannel shirt and a pair of jeans. Cowboy boots, scruffy beard. He surely didn't look like he was going to a black tie event, but he didn't look like he had crawled out from under a railroad trussle either. He sniffed his armpits. Ew, he hoped he didn't run into anybody, because he was kind of stinky. 
Is this a quote from Diary of a Wimpy Kid? He was kinda stinky. Is his name George or Gregory? Alright, there we go. That wraps up everything that I wanted to say about Hidden by Fern Michaels. This book is a series with the second book, Secrets, already out, and the third book, Liar, with an exclamation point, coming out this year. I will not be putting myself through the rest of the series, but I bring this up because I just want to point something out, which is that book one, Hidden, which we discussed today, has an average rating of 4.04 stars on Goodreads, and the second book, Secrets, has an even better average rating of 4.24 stars. 4.04 stars is the highest rating, I think, of all the books that we have discussed in this mini-series, and it's a higher rating than people have given to books that I really loved. The Postmistress of Paris, which I was gushing about only a couple months ago, only has a 3.77 average rating. For Hidden, 4,962 people gave it 5 stars. For those people, it doesn't get any better than this book. And, you know, I'm not here to say that's wrong any more than I'm here to say that my opinion is right. Clearly, these books have an audience. Congrats to the author. She's 90 years old. She's still putting out books. And, you know, she still has people who really enjoy her work. Good for her. Good for her readers. And good for me. Because I am officially done with this book. And I never have to think about it again. Winners all around. To wrap up this episode, I have two things on the agenda. One, better thriller recommendation. Honestly, any thriller, because this book isn't a thriller. But if you're looking for the kind of book that this was advertised to be, where you have family, family secrets, uncovering a dark past, spooky house, then I really enjoyed The Family Upstairs by Lisa Jewell. My second Lisa Jewell recommendation, I kind of got into her work and I really enjoyed both of the books I read. The Family Upstairs is not perfect. Like there is an element of the book that I'm not gonna get into because it would be a spoiler, but there's an element of the book that I'm not really a fan of, but Atmosphere-wise, like story-wise, I, I just really liked it. I had a lot of fun reading it. And it does actually have some heartwarming, wholesome moments like this book, Hidden, was attempting to create. But unlike in Hidden, the heartwarming moments in The Family Upstairs felt earned because the characters had to go through a lot to get to those moments. Personally, I love the book, and if you're looking for kind of a dark thriller, but not like a super dark thriller, you know what I mean? Like kind of, I guess like a gothic dark thriller, then I would recommend that book, The Family Upstairs by Lisa Jewell. If you want a better version of what this book hidden actually is a cozy mystery with like a small town and stuff then I would recommend the secret book and scone society books it's a it's a whole series by Ellery Adams 
My favorite book in that series is the Book of Candlelight. Technically, there is like a continual narrative, you know what I mean, going through the books, particularly when it comes to like the romance stuff. But I think you can read them out of order. I don't think it's like a big deal personally, but you know, you can start at the beginning if you want. And in particular, there is a love interest in that series who is really similar to Gaines. So like if that whole thing was like appealing to you, then definitely I think The Secret Book and Scun Society is a better version of what Hidden was trying to do. All right, so that's my better thriller recommendation and my better cozy mystery recommendation. Now let's move on to our mini writing workshop where we bring together the lessons that we have learned in this mini series about how to not write bad thrillers. From what happened to the Bennets and also from the Maidens, we learned that sadness over idealized dead characters isn't particularly interesting because it's hard to feel sad about fictional people that we never got to meet or engage with as real people. If you want us to feel bad about dead people, you can't make them caricatures like Allison or generic ideal dead people like Sebastian. It's just not very interesting to read about. Sorry, not sorry. I might take this a step further and say that centering dead victims in your thriller should be avoided altogether just because it's so easy to fall into generic tropes and so hard to actually make it interesting. Props if you can, But in general, it's the ways in which living characters struggle with their memories or perceptions of the dead that can make those dead characters interesting. And it can be hard to do well, especially in thrillers, where the focus tends to be less on characters' inner lives and more on twists and interesting plot points. From The Maidens and also from Hidden, We learned about the importance of fully thinking through your story structure. The Maidens had a cool premise and a crazy plot twist, but personally, I did not enjoy the journey from point A to point B. Hidden had an okay premise and no plot twists, but there wasn't enough story to justify the length. You need to craft a story that is both a satisfying thriller and that is also satisfying on its own. Ideally, you would strive for a balance, but of course that also depends on the thriller subgenre that you're working within. Finally, filler. Both what happened to the Bennets and Hidden suffered massively from filler. So I will just say... Please do not put filler in your thrillers. Let me repeat that one more time. Do not put filler in your thrillers. Or maybe this is easier to remember. If it's filler, don't put it in your thriller. Here you go. If it's filler, don't put it in your thriller. And let's specifically define what we mean by filler, especially in relation to thrillers. Fundamentally, When you pick up a thriller, you kind of expect a book that makes you want to keep turning the pages, a book that makes you want to know what happens next. Hopefully that's not too restrictive as a baseline definition. So 
even when a thriller is focusing on the characters and their inner lives, I feel like those sections should still be moving the plot forward or tying into the plot or themes or atmosphere in some way. And I know that's strange coming from someone who loves character-driven stories, but for thrillers, there's not really a way around it. Everything in a thriller has to be a Chekhov's gun. And you can still get some really great characters out of thrillers. Jillian Flynn's sharp objects, which I know I already mentioned, but which I loved so much, has really great characters, but the characters are always moving the plot forward. So my advice is always ask yourself when you're writing a thriller, does this move the plot forward? Does it add to the tension, the suspense, the atmosphere? If not, then it's filler. Okay, so that officially wraps up our first ever Bad Thrillers mini-series. We did it, you guys. I'm not doing, I'm not doing another one of these this year. Props to people who review bad books all the time, but like, I can't, I can't do it. I couldn't do it and I don't really want to. I'm going to take the rest of July off. I meant to take the whole month off, but you know, this book happened. Anyway, I will be back again in August and I, I want to be talking about books that I enjoyed or I at least found interesting. I'm thinking that maybe in August I'll do some kind of mini-series related to the two story graph challenges that I'm participating in this year, which are not like super interesting. They're just the official ones that are being hosted by the story graph. And I'm finding it hard to incorporate books fitting into the challenge, like incorporating those types of books into my TBR. So I'm thinking that doing a mini series will help me like intentionally fulfill the challenges. And so yeah, I'm thinking that that might be what we'll do for August, but of course we'll have to see. I will be linking the story graph challenges in the description if you want to take a look and participate or, you know, just <laughs> see what we might be doing for August. So that's all from me for this week and also for this month. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me, this bad thrillers journey, and just also my podcasting journey. I am incredibly excited by the progress that I've made since I started podcasting a couple of months ago. Really, you know, only a couple of months ago. It's so weird to put that into perspective. And I'm really excited to see where this journey goes and, you know, what we'll be doing in the future. And I just, I want to thank everyone who listens for coming along on this journey with me. It really means a lot to me. It amazes me that there are people who enjoy listening to what I think about books because I love books so much and I know that there are so many places to get book related content so thank you so much for choosing to listen to me and what I have to say thank you again I will be back again next month at 2 a.m until then have a great month have a great summer if it's summer where you live and most of all happy book travels (laughs) 